0: Hey there, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Climate Ready Podcast, where we are bringing you the latest stories, trends, and perspectives on international climate issues. This is Alex Moroner from the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, or AGWA. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a minute to introduce our new co-host on the Climate Ready Podcast. Earlier this season, we had the pleasure of working with Aaron Gooch, who has since moved on to tackle some new work in water management planning and engineering. We wish her all the best in her new endeavors. Now we're being joined by the newest member of the Climate Ready team, Ingrid Timbo.
1: Hi Alex, hello everyone. My name is Ingrid Timbo and I am super excited to be joining the Climate Ready podcast team. I'll tell you a little bit more about myself and then we can dig into the episode. So, I hold a Master's of Science in Water Resources Management from Oregon State University here in the U.S. and prior to doing the degree, I spent seven years in Washington, D.C. working on global conservation policy for the World Wildlife Fund. I'm thrilled to be a part of this work because I believe that climate change is water change. We are experiencing and will continue to experience climate change most profoundly through changes to the hydrologic cycle. Adapting to these changes requires learning, and there are so many very smart people around the world working to address these changes at all scales and across a variety of disciplines and sectors, so I'm excited for this opportunity to learn from them and share their knowledge with all of you. And not to give too much away, but I know one of the things we'd like to work on for season two of the podcast is establishing more of a dialogue with our listeners. So I'm excited to hear about how climate change impacts your life and work as well. All right, now that we're up to speed, let's dive into today's topic.
0: Thanks, Ingrid. Today we'll be looking at the cutting edge of climate adaptation work focusing on a brand new approach for assessing and reducing the influence of climate change on water resources management planning, design, and operation. This approach, known as Collaborative Risk-Informed Decision Analysis, or CRIDA, combines state-of-the-art techniques to develop robust solutions through stakeholder involvement, while simultaneously assessing risk with flexible governance-sensitive approaches, operations, and implementation. CRIDA is still in its early days, with a forthcoming publication due in early 2018, While we await that document, some institutions have already begun to test out this new climate adaptation approach through pilot projects.
1: That brings us to today's episode, where we'll be joined by Mark Takash of the Millennium Challenge Corporation. He'll be chatting with us about his experience trying out this new bottom-up climate adaptation methodology. As you'll hear in a bit, MCC has put the CRIDA approach into practice in Lusaka, Zambia, where they rehabilitated a water treatment facility to be more resilient in times of drought. You'll want to stick around to hear more about this innovative project. Stay tuned!
0: The Climate Ready podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation an informal international network of water and climate professionals working to develop, enable, and mainstream climate change adaptation and mitigation practices within water resources management, decision-making processes, policies, and implementation. The Climate Ready podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org.
1: Today we have Mark Takash joining us on the podcast to discuss how water professionals deal with uncertainty in planning and decision making. Mark is a global infrastructure expert and the director at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, an independent U.S. foreign aid agency established by Congress in 2004 that is helping to lead the fight against global poverty by encouraging sustainable development. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. It's great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: And Mark, let's start off by having you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the work you're doing at Millennium Challenge Corporation, or MCC.
2: Uh, sure. I am the Director of Infrastructure in our water group, and I've been here about 10 years. Um, I've worked over much of Africa and um, Eastern Europe uh, in our, our portfolio there. Before that, I was a civil engineer at a firm here in Fairfax County in uh, Northern Virginia. And before that, I was um, in the military as a civil engineer in the Air Force. Uh, So MCC um, is a small U.S. government agency. We're independent in that we answer to a board of directors uh, versus a cabinet secretary. And um, we focus on um, projects in countries that we know will lead to economic growth. And we have an economic model we use. Um, to establish what those projects are. And we focus on um, a small group of countries at a time. So I think right now we're engaged in uh, about 20 or so countries. And we do these um, large five-year investments. The size of a a grant agreement is anywhere between $200 and $700 million, mainly focused on infrastructure. So it's using uh, taxpayer funds uh, in a grant agreement with that country in five years to... Um, institute large, usually infrastructure programs, and then the all supporting kind governance and policy required to make that infrastructure successful that would raise the economic profile of that country. And then we work uh, on the sustainability and how we realize those benefits over the 10, 15, 20 years that it's planned for.
0: Could you give us a a short synopsis, if possible, about how MCC uh, relates to climate adaptation?
2: Right. So making sure that we um, we get these benefits realized is, is important to what we are committed to do because it's not just enough to build the road or the bridge or the water treatment plant and then walk away. Um, we're also committed to making sure that over time we see those benefits and that we study that and then we um, produce um, studies to show what has and hasn't worked. But one of the uh, threats to realizing those benefit, benefits is the changing climate. So. For example, uh, we work in Niger, which is a country that is um, highly prone to drought. And I think we've seen in the last couple of years just the migration um, as a result of that. And same in Zambia, where I'm working now, uh, in Lusaka, the capital they've had, um, last year and year before, a serious drought that caused 12 to 14 hours a day of load shedding, which really disrupts the economy. And so it's important that the assets we build are adaptive and robust to a changing climate.
0: So, Mark, one of the approaches that you've been using in pilot projects is this bottom-up climate adaptation approach known as CRIDA. Can you tell us a little bit about CRIDA and the role it plays in strengthening the work that you're doing?
2: CRIDA. So, CRIDA is collaborative risk-informed decision analysis, and what it does for us, it helps um, provide a bottom-up vulnerability approach to systems that we are developing and improving and rehabilitating define those weaknesses that we believe, um, in this case, um, a changing climate will affect and reduce the long-term benefits we are trying to achieve. And if we can then, in early stages of design, strengthen those vulnerabilities or mitigate them, uh, we believe we'll be better set to realize what we intended to accomplish.
0: That's the quick rundown on CRIDA and its role in your work. CRIDA is an approach that implements decision scaling and bottom-up vulnerability approaches through collaborative stepwise planning procedures and adaptation pathways. Can you explain how these components of CRIDA play out in practice?
2: Okay, this is why I understand decision scaling being what we've done. So we look at, in my case, you know, an asset, infrastructure asset that we're looking to protect so that its benefits uh, in the future are realized. And so we then will model a system around inputs to that asset and understand through decision-scaling approach what inputs are most sensitive to climate change and then what can we do um, to address those vulnerabilities that we've identified and then model using the model test those approaches to address that vulnerability and then uh, we go through a series of further analysis in the political analysis the governance analysis the cost analysis feasibility uh, about these options we want to try and we you know, pick one or a hybrid of one or two and implement it and either plan it out through this adaptive pathways approach or put it into the work that we're doing now.
1: Thanks, Mark. You've mentioned that the effects of climate change are experienced across the globe. This is forcing planners, scientists, and engineers to grapple with planning for an increasingly uncertain future. What are some examples of uncertainty that you've had to address in your work at the Millennium Challenge Corporation?
2: Generally, um... The two types of uncertainty I'm focused on mainly now is, is one, the changing climate and how it affects the benefits of our programs. And also another one that I would hope to use for in the future, which is how the operations and maintenance of our assets um, after we have disengaged from the projects and how we can set that up and predict or not predict, but the uncertainty of how you maintain these assets, um, because there's often not a strong culture of maintenance in, in the areas that we work in some examples about uncertainty that we've experienced, especially in the realm of climate, it's the droughts. Uh, so Zambia, the like, example I just gave, um, is a very significant drought that led to the water utility. Part of our project is, is increasing the solvency of the water utility, and in the period of the drought, their revenues dropped by half. And we saw revenues in utilities across the country and across the, the drought zone drop so much they had to furlough a staff, which really impedes their ability to improve the quality of their service. Uh, we also work on a lot of agricultural programs that have the same type of risks uh, in Mali, in um, like Niger, and Morocco, and um, western Western northern Africa. So we do look and screen for climate and how climate futures will affect these projects. The idea behind using CREDA is to make this more systematized and more defensible going forward so that when we Propose changes and amendments to the way we approach the project, we can get more traction and getting those approved because at the end what SMC also part is that the countries themselves are accountable and they carry out these projects with our support after we worked on what the agreement is, what the projects will contain and how they'll be implemented.
1: Another concept that gets thrown around a lot in this type of work is the term deep uncertainty. What does deep uncertainty mean to you, and how would you describe this idea to someone with no background in this field?
2: So I come from the the practitioner side. Um, We don't do any research here. We are in the field building these projects day in, day out, and I have to explain to people um, why we would want to look at doing a creative approach and um, what deep uncertainty is and why that is something that exists. And the way I explain it is that um, it's often in engineering we're able to use historical data to forecast what the future might be like, and then we can plan around that. And with deep uncertainty, we don't have that um, advantage. What happened in the past does not uh, help us understand what will happen in the future. And right now, the model forecasts around global climate change are at a level of um, refinement that we can use those on, you know, on a water system for example in a city or you know in an agricultural um, perimeter. So with deep uncertainty we we really don't know what it might be like but we can use an aggregate of models to understand which way it might be going and then using our judgment and the way we um, our expert judgment and the way we appraise our projects we can address you know that unknown so that they realize the benefits and that's the goal here is to lift people out of poverty, uh, raise household incomes over um, many, many years after our program ends. And if we can like, give given certainty as a threat to that successfully, we can get them on our side to help address it.
0: So moving ahead, you mentioned how Millennium Challenge Corporation is working on a pilot project in collaboration with the United States Army Corps of Engineers and their Institute for Water Resources. Uh, this project is focused on rehabilitating a water treatment plant in Zambia's capital, Lusaka. Could you tell us a little bit more about that project? What are the goals and how it's progressing?
2: Right. And let me just go back a little bit how I came to work with IWR about this. Um, they would come by here a few times uh, looking to get us interested in the Creta approach or decision-scaling approach, and although we weren't very interested um, We are a small staff and we are focused on implementing and developing these programs quickly. So to take time aside to understand it and try to find where it fits in, actually quite difficult for us or or for any organization that might be able to um, take advantage of CRETA. So I was able to get a six month detail to IWR and sit in their offices and really kind of dig in and understand it and then start understanding how it might work within the way we operate. And so it's, it's this kind of thing that is what it really takes you to get these things to uh, take off to be a real champion, uh, both it's interested and then even within both organizations to try to together. So as I came over, I was working, still I'm working on this program in uh, Zambia. Part of the program is the rehabilitation of the only water treatment plant of Lusaka, their capital city, which has about two, two and a half million people living in it. And this provides 40% of the water to their service areas that population. And in this rehabilitation, uh, there's a we hadn't actually in early days considered climate necessarily. They had, had a serious drought in the 90s, but since then there hadn't been uh, much concern until 2015 when a very serious drought hit, and the country is reliant on hydropower. In this drought, they lost a lot of their power when the plant we're working on is also reliant on power and, and water. And there's a lot of and it was um, a drought that was a result mainly of um, poor governance more than it was um, actually a meteorological problem or event, which is also you know, important to understand that some of these things don't just happen because of the weather or the, or the climate, but also how it, how viable resources are managed. So from that, uh, we started looking at what is the system that this water treatment plant is in, where does it get water from, where does it get power from, And then how can we protect the benefits we're looking to achieve through our project that we already have underway for the next 10, 15, 20 years? So we looked at the system and we modeled it and the water and power inputs. And we quickly realized that power was um, the most sensitive of the two inputs. Um, The the river that we draw water from for the plant, uh, we still have water for some time even after the plant was not operating properly because they were not receiving enough power. And we were already seeing that, again, like through this drought scenario. So we looked at, you know, what are uh, flexible and robust options, you know, robust meaning that our our management options or our solutions would ensure the outcomes at this plant under a range of future climates and inflexible in that we could either change course at some point in the future or that we don't have to implement the entire option right now. We can look at phase net in later um, due to costs and... Uh, the implementation strategy that we already have underway. So from that, you know, power was the most sensitive factor, and we looked at uh, a couple different solutions. Uh, one was, you know, generators for the high-lift pumps, and we're pumping water about 50 kilometers uphill to get to the city. So that's where most of the power goes, and that's where the kind of the weak link in the chain is, or a dedicated power circuit from the, water, the power utility to this plant. So even when you were doing brownouts and blackouts, it would keep the water moving. Then lastly, increasing the storage in the city, Um, So that when there is these blackouts, there's still water for some period of time until pumping can be reestablished. And in the end, uh, we modeled all three of these into our system and it was clear um, we would go with the generators. The decade power circuit looked like a a good one, too. And it was. There's um, some political work that had to be done. And for the study, we went ahead with the generators. And all we need to do at this point is put in um, infrastructure so we can connect generators in the future. Uh, and um, because they've not reached the climate state, although this drought know, has passed, uh, they've not re- reached a climate state where they would be having regular failures that would require that type kind of an
0: intervention. And, and you mentioned a little bit about this this need for adaptive management. We talked to, uh, to Lane Hasnut of Deltaras in an earlier episode about the idea of adaptation pathways. Could you quickly go over the need for coming up with these plans that are adaptive to different future climates or different future scenarios that you can work with the managers there to implement, like you said, a robust but flexible um, set of options depending on what threats or vulnerabilities appear down the road.
2: Right. And this is a really interesting one because um, adaptive pathways is a very useful tool to make sure you're having the right investments at the right times. And when we work in some of these countries, it's very hard to get that kind of planning in place and then followed uh, plans often end up on shelves and are, are left there. Um, in, in this case, we have an agreement with them and understanding that when they feel they reach a threshold, which isn't necessarily as quantitative as we would like it to be, uh, they would put these um, generators in place. And we are working also on their asset management systems at the utility so that they know when and how to engage in these investments. In, in other countries that maybe have a more developed planning structure and um, culture, adaptive pathways is probably better suited for how they handle, you know, their climate risk in the future.
0: You know, you bring up a couple interesting points here. The first being that this is not a simple one-component planning process. It involves consideration of both infrastructure and investment decisions. Adaptation pathways allow you to think about making the right investments at the right times, as you said. I'm also glad that you brought up the role of planning capacity when it comes to using adaptation pathways. In the case of Zambia, there were some perceived capacity gaps when it came to the planning structure that made the use of adaptation pathways challenging, but it can still prove to be a beneficial thought exercise, if nothing else, to help come up with creative, robust, and flexible plans.
1: Just as a follow-up for you, Mark, when it comes to the planning process used in Zambia or elsewhere, how do you weigh the different management options in the decision scaling process?
2: So we look at it's in the form of a lot of context, where's the history with these kind of ideas already with the people we're working with? Uh, they've already had experiences working either with the power utility or with the Ministry of, power, of Energy um, on other type of solutions. What is the availability of the materials and expertise in the region and getting it there and keeping it maintained? Uh, and then what is the cost, you know, it comes down to, then what is the um, all-in cost to execute this and it's usually in, in this case study it was very clear what we could and couldn't do as far as cost goes and what was a feasible approach i think later you know a little bit more of the discussion around what is feasible what's politically acceptable what would be most feasible in kind of the political environment in the governance environment and that's how we came to choose the uh, generators at the end
0: the zambia case as an example is a really interesting one because it brings in so many different stakeholder groups uh, so many different needs and, and really a lot of different issues so we're it's kind of the the whole water energy food climate nexus when you consider that you're talking about water availability hydropower energy and governance. so in Zambia or or more generally whose voices um, tend to be the most important and are those uh, the loudest ones or how do you decide how do you decide that?
2: We work to evaluate these management options at the lowest level, or I would say the the more technical level, and then present these to the decision makers so that they can understand quickly and concisely what is important and feasible, and then get their feedback about what they think may be the obstacles to some of these options. At the end of the day, I I, we hope it's not the loudest person in the room because they're not always right, but it's, it's it really does come back, you know, in this case, the utility management and what they perceive as possible and what they believe um, is something that they can maintain and what they want. You know, at the end of the day, if they don't want it, they're not going to do anything with it. So, certainly, we see them as, you know, the end user and the client, and it's most important that they believe in this. The second probably to that is, in our case, is the cost, and can our projects bear that cost? We work under a fixed budget. Once the grant agreement is set, there's no amendments to the budget. It is what it is. So... That is a give-and-take, and and we have to look elsewhere and understand where's the trade-offs if we are going to um, increase the scope of the project.
1: The work you've done in Zambia was, in many ways, a means of testing out some new climate adaptation strategies for MCC. That includes CRIDA and its Decision Scaling and Adaptation Pathways components. How have these bottom-up approaches fit within MCC's strategies and programming, both in the short term and
2: going forward? I think we're showing that decision scaling and this creative approach does not take a lot of time. We can get done in under a few months and it does not, not come at great cost and it gives us a wealth of information to understand uh, where our programs are vulnerable to uncertain futures. Uh, so there is more and more interest when it's finding the right kind of projects in the right point of development and uh, we are still focused on water and agricultural projects. Uh, in the future we'd like to find ways to broaden this to incorporate some of our transportation and energy projects. Um, This is a little different than the way people are used to developing projects. So it is a learning curve, and, and we're working on it. We are always working on it.
1: Thanks, Mark. For our last question, based on your experience, we thought we'd ask about the boundaries of decision scaling. Do you think decision scaling can work for challenges not related to climate change? And where do you think the future of this approach may lead?
2: Well, I certainly hope so. Um, I just only want to look at some of these other uncertainties, especially around how these um, assets are maintained in the operational um, policies and procedures for the future and how we can use uh, decision scaling to strengthen vulnerabilities in, in, that, in that context because I think that has a really dramatic effect on our ability to get what we want and the outcomes that we want for the people we're trying to service and, and um, bring out of poverty. Um, so that's where you know, my focus will be on next is uh, looking at this other um, aspect and then also um, reaching out into the transportation energy sectors and finding uh, a home for this kind of decision analysis uh, in, in those type of projects.
0: Well, that's all we had for you today, Mark. It was great to hear about the work you're doing at Millennium Challenge Corporation and some of the new approaches you're trying out. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast.
2: Thank you, guys.
0: Hey, listeners. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Mark Takash. We'd like to thank him again for joining us on the podcast. If you want to learn more about Millennium Challenge Corporation, visit www.mcc.gov. Mark also made a couple entertaining short animated videos explaining this work in a really easy to understand format. You'll find the links to those in the episode description.
1: Now before we go, Alex and I want to take a minute to reflect on some of the topics we touched on today. It seems like in every episode we're hearing about new and innovative ideas and projects related to climate adaptation. That's because this is still a relatively new and continuously evolving field. The boundary is constantly being pushed forward in terms of the technical and decision-making science around water resources management, planning, design, and operation.
0: As we heard from Mark, Millennium Challenge Corporation is part of this push, driving innovation by piloting new approaches such as CRIDA. The work they've done in Zambia has helped to demonstrate that CRIDA is scalable, affordable, and relatively easy to implement. We're learning that we have to rely on these bottom-up approaches to assess and address system vulnerabilities because we're facing an unprecedented number of unpredictable drivers, not only climate, but population growth, increased urbanization, demographic shifts, and so many others. For these decisions related to water management with long-term implications, we've got to think things through at all stages, from planning, to design, to operation and management. CRIDA and other bottom-up approaches aim to do just that. To find out more about CRIDA, decision scaling, or adaptation pathways approaches to climate adaptation, visit www.aguaguide.org about.
1: That's all for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the Climate Ready Podcast on iTunes and keep an eye out for our next episode where we'll talk about ways that utility companies are working to ensure climate resilience in the face of more demand and more extremes. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.
0: The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation is directed and edited by Alex Moroner.